This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Chapter 13 New Testament Moral Judgments Endorse the Law Quote, the attempt made by some Christian teachers today to reject or circumscribe the authority of the Old Testament law will over and over again meet with embarrassment before the text of the New Testament. End quote. The Old Testament law of God gives definitive substance to many of the central themes of New Testament ethics, as we have illustrated before. When we ask what it means to follow the will of God or to be holy, as the New Testament requires, we find that the law of God defines these ethical themes. Likewise, the law of God is assumed in notions like kingdom righteousness or the golden rule. The law functions as a standard and a guide when we heed New Testament exhortations to attain the stature of Christ or demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. New Testament ethical themes quite often take for granted the validity of God's Old Testament commandments. The complete, continuous, and thus contemporary validity of the Old Testament law, which is assumed without challenge in many themes of New Testament ethics, is brought out explicitly in moral judgments which fill the pages of the New Testament. In particular circumstances, when some kind of moral evaluation, direction, or exhortation is called for, New Testament preachers and writers often show that they stand firmly on the Old Testament law in making their judgments. They treat and utilize the standing rules of ethics as found in the Old Testament as though these rules were meant for them to keep, even though these rules were given a great many years earlier, before the advent of Christ our Savior. Particular instances of ethical decision-making in the New Testament illustrate once again that the commandments of God found in the Old Testament have not been discarded, repudiated, or ignored as somehow no longer authoritative and valid. Use and Validity Imagine that you wake up some morning to an exasperating problem. The plumbing under the kitchen sink needs repair, and a pool of water sits on the floor. After you mop up the mess, you stop and take thought as to what should be done to solve your plumbing problem. You think about calling a plumber, but reject that plan as too expensive and perhaps unnecessary. Upon reflection, you come to believe that you might very well be able to repair the plumbing yourself, if only you had some good direction. Therefore, you conclude that you will go down to the public library this morning and check out a self-help book on kitchen plumbing. Add one more feature to this scenario, namely, that you are reasonably informed as to the operating procedures of a public library. That is, you realize that the library is not open all of the time, and that only those with library cards may have the privilege of checking out books. So then, let us go back to your decision to check out a self-help book on plumbing this morning. What does such a decision tell us about your current beliefs? Among other things, it tells us that you believe, rightly or wrongly, that the public library is open this morning, that you have a library card there, and that the library card is still valid. If you decided to use the library's self-help plumbing book this morning, but knew either that the library was closed, that you had no card, or that your card was expired, you would most likely be irrational or a crook. People do not normally plan to use things which are closed down. For example, the library, non-existent or expired. For example, your library card. 
Likewise, when you wait in line at the mobile oil gas station, fill your car's tank with gas, and then hand the attendant your credit card, you are expecting that the card is still valid. Whether you scrupulously check the expiration date on the credit card before submitting it for payment to the attendant or not, the very fact that you use the card reveals the assumed validity of that card. And the attendant's acceptance of that card shows that he too believes it to be a valid one. When something has expired or is no longer valid, we do not have the authority to use it. Dishonesty aside, an expired library card or invalid credit card is useless. On the other hand, the use of something indicates its validity. Rules Much of the same can be said regarding rules. Invalid or expired rules have lost their authority and as such are useless, except for purposes of historical illustration. A professor may draw laughs from his class by reading some of the city ordinances which were on the books a century ago, but a policeman would be out of place in trying to enforce them. A rule which has been repealed, amended, or replaced is no longer authoritative and cannot be used as a rule any longer. Thus, if a rule is put to use, the assumption must be that it is, or is thought to be, a valid rule. When a football referee allows a touchdown to count which was accomplished by means of a forward pass, it is futile for the other team to complain against the pass on the grounds that the forward pass was once illegitimate in football. The old prohibition against the forward pass has been repealed, and football is now played by slightly different rules. When a baseball umpire does not allow a designated hitter to bat for the pitcher, it is evident that the umpire is taking National League rules to be valid instead of American League rules. The use of the particular rule instead of alternative rules demonstrates the current authority and validity of the particular rule. For this reason, a driver who is stopped by a highway patrolman for traveling 65 miles per hour will not avoid a ticket by appealing to the former law, which set the maximum speed at 65. The use of the 55-mile-per-hour speed law by the courts and the police establishes the validity of this law over against the older one. We do not use expired rules if we are informed and honest. Looking at library cards and credit cards, and reflecting on civil rules and sports rules, we have seen that the use of them assumes their validity. Invalid cards and rules are unauthoritative. We can now apply this reasonable insight to the practice of the New Testament speakers and writers. Like policemen and umpires, the inspired speakers and writers of the New Testament were called upon to make decisions on the basis of rules. They needed to draw moral judgments in particular situations. When that time came, which rules did they utilize? Did they, being infallibly informed in their utterances, ignore the moral rules, commandments, of the Old Testament as though they were expired, inapplicable, or invalid? What does the New Testament usage of the Old Testament law tell us about that law's authority today? Antinomian Doctrines The current validity of the standing rules of Old Testament morality is either challenged or drastically reduced by many within the Christian church today. We find some who teach that the New Testament Christian has nothing whatsoever to do with the law of the Old Testament. The believer, it is said, is not bound to the law at all. We find others who would put stiff limits on the extent of the Old Testament law's validity. The believer, they say, is bound to follow only a portion of the Old Testament moral code, usually the Ten Commandments. But what does the inductively ascertained practice of the New Testament speakers and writers reveal about this? Do they ignore the law and moral judgments? In ethical decision-making, do they restrict themselves to the Decalogue? Simply put, the answer is no. 
The New Testament speakers and writers themselves are more than willing to put the Old Testament law, Decalogue and Extra Decalogue, into service in critical moral judgments. They do not treat the Old Testament commandments like an expired library card or repealed speed limit. Just the opposite is the case. They make free and unexplained use of the Old Testament law, thereby assuming its moral authority for the New Testament age, extending from Christ to the consummation. Moreover, the use of the Old Testament law in New Testament moral judgments is quite thorough. It is not limited to a single New Testament writer, although that would be enough to establish the law's authority, to a single New Testament book, although again the authority of one infallible document is sufficient, or to one restricted Old Testament source. In context of moral application, New Testament citations and allusions are taken from portions of Genesis, Proverbs, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and Zechariah. However, even more frequently and consistently, does the New Testament make moral judgments on the basis of the law portion of the Old Testament, citing Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23, Leviticus chapter 11, 18, 19, 20, 21, 24, and 25, Numbers chapters 18 and 30, and Deuteronomy chapters 1, 4, 5, 6, 8, 13, 15, 17, 19, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and 27. The moral use of these Old Testament passages will be found scattered throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st Timothy, Hebrews, James, 1st Peter, 1st John, and Revelation. Therefore, the attempt made by some Christian teachers today to reject or reduce the authority of the Old Testament law will over and over again meet with embarrassment before the text of the New Testament. New Testament Moral Judgments Let us examine some New Testament texts where moral judgments can be found. They illustrate how the Old Testament law was regarded as a valid ethical standard. Specifically, we could see how the current authority of the law was not viewed by them as restricted to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Jesus versus Opponents We can begin for convenience with the discussions of Jesus with his opponents and inquirers. Of course, his greatest opponent was Satan, the tempter who had led Adam astray from disobedience to God. Christ, the second Adam, directly encountered Satan in a 40-day period of temptation in the wilderness. Satan repeatedly tempted Jesus to depart from the course of redemption laid down by the Father, and each time Jesus overcame the temptation by citing the authoritative word of God. For instance, Satan tried to entice Jesus into a test of God's care and fidelity, challenging him to leap from the pinnacle of the temple. Many years earlier, Israel, also in the wilderness, had been lured into testing the care and fidelity of God, Exodus chapter 17, verses 1-7. through as a result, the law of God recorded, quote, You shall not put Jehovah your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah. End quote. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Such a law would surely seem conditioned by its historical setting and restricted to its Jewish recipients. Yet in the face of the satanic temptation, Jesus cited this very commandment to thwart his adversary. Quote, Jesus said unto him, Again it stands written, You shall not make a test of the Lord your God. End quote. Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. Clearly the law of God was deemed valid and was not restricted to the Ten Commandments. 
Of course, Jesus also deemed the Ten Commandments to be authoritative, but not uniquely so. When he was asked to judge which commandments should be kept in order to enter eternal life, he made use of a portion of the Decalogue, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 19, and Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. However, at the same time, he included the relevant case law, quote, do not defraud, end quote, Mark chapter 10, verse 19, from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14, and the summary command, love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew chapter 19, verse 19, from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. He used the extra decalogical commands just as authoritatively as the decalogue's own requirements. Indeed, when asked to judge which was the greatest commandment in the entire Old Testament, Jesus did not go to the Ten Commandments at all, but chose rather two laws outside the Decalogue. Love God with all of your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Distilling the Old Testament's moral demand into these two particular extra decalogical laws was apparently already known and discussed in Jesus' day. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. It was a commonplace among the rabbis to distinguish between heavy and light commands in the Old Testament. The heavier laws, being those from which moral commands could be deduced from others, such rabbinic efforts can be traced to the Old Testament itself, where its precepts are summarized in a different number of principles by various writers. 11 by David in Psalm 15, 6 by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 33 verse 15, 3 by Micah in Micah chapter 6 verse 8, one by Amos, Amos chapter 5, verse 4, and by Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk. According to Jesus, the greatest commandments, the first of all, on which the whole law hangs, were the extra-decalogical love commandments. Matthew chapter 22, verses 33 and 36, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 and 31. The problem with the Pharisees, said the Lord, was precisely that they attended to the minor details of the law, tithing, and have left undone the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. That is the love of God. Luke chapter 11, verse 42. It is important at just this point that we pay attention to Jesus' words, for he does not encourage exclusive attention to the weightier love commandments of the Old Testament law. He says quite precisely, quote, These you ought to have done and not to have left the other undone, end quote. Our obligation to the weightier matters of the law does not cancel our obligation to the minor details. Consequently, the practice of Jesus does not encourage a disregard for the details of God's law as though New Testament moral duty is bound to a small subsection of the Old Testament law. Jesus was often challenged by the traditionalists, who took their authority from outside of the scriptures, about his activities on the Sabbath. In his defense, he would respond, quote, Have you not read in the law? End quote. Matthew chapter 12, verse 5, and John chapter 7, verse 23, citing the Sabbath activity of the priests. Had the law been outmoded by his coming, of course, such a vindication of his behavior would have been baseless. Over and over again, Jesus could show that the traditionalists, whose boast was in the details of the law, were actually violating and twisting the law's demands. For example, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48. On an occasion where Christ's disciples were accused by the Pharisees of violating their traditions, Christ replied that the traditionalists actually transgressed the commandments of God in order to preserve their traditions instead. Matthew chapter 15 verse 3 and verses 6 through 9. 
It is striking to note the specific illustration which Jesus chooses to use among many available ones in this particular moral judgment. He says that while the law of God requires honor for one's parents and death for those who dishonor them, the Pharisees allow a subterfuge by which one can withhold financial aid to his parents. Matthew chapter 15 verses 4 and 5. The Mosaic law which Christ holds up as valid, the standard by which to judge the Pharisaical performance, is the detail of the law, commonly ridiculed today, which requires the death penalty for cursing one's parents. Jesus' Instructions to the Church Another illustration of Jesus' use of the Old Testament's moral standards outside the Decalogue, which can be found when he lays down instructions for the new organization of the people of God. As the church replaced national Israel in the plan of redemption, it needed its own operating instructions, for instance, regarding discipline. In the moral judgment delivered by Christ regarding this manner, he asserted the demand of the Old Testament law, quote, At the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established, end quote. Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, John chapter 8, verse 17, based on the law at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, and chapter 19, verse 15. The same Old Testament law of legal evidence promoted by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. Sexual Ethics The use of the Old Testament law in matters of sexual relations, payment to workers, and revenge towards enemies further substantiates the New Testament dependence on the law's validity. When Paul prohibits marrying an unbeliever, he cites the Old Testament requirement that unlike animals are not to be yoked together. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10. Quote, Be not unequally yoked together, end quote, is a well-known verse used by many pastors to discourage their young people from marrying outside the faith, and yet many of these same pastors will elsewhere insist that the believer is not under the requirements of the Old Testament law. When Paul was confronted with the wicked situation of incest within the church, his moral judgment on the matter was taken from the Old Testament prohibition. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, based on Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 30. Ask just about any evangelical pastor today whether incest is immoral from a biblical standpoint, and he will surely insist that it is, thereby enlisting the moral standards of the Old Testament, even if he proclaims elsewhere, and inconsistently, that they are repealed and invalid. Or ask him about homosexuality. He may refer to Paul's words in Romans, However, when Paul delivered this apostolic judgment as to the immorality of homosexuality, he simply reiterated the standard of the Old Testament, Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 and 32, from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, and Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. Economic Ethics Turning from sexual to economic ethics, we again find that the New Testament makes unhindered use of the Old Testament commandments in Christian moral judgments. Paul's argument that congregations should pay their pastors is especially enlightening as to the extent of the law's validity. He argues from the case law principle of the Old Testament that, quote, you shall not muzzle an ox as it treads, end quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9, from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4 thereby revealing the assumed contemporary authority of the laws outside the Decalogue. An invalid rule would be useless here, but even more striking is Paul's willingness to appeal to the moral principle embodied in one of the ceremonial laws. Pastors should earn their livelihood from the gospel ministry because priests derived their sustenance from the altar. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 through 14, based on such texts as Leviticus chapter 6, verse 16, and verse 26, chapter 7, verse 6, and verse 31, Numbers chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, Numbers chapter 19, verses 8 through 20, and verse 31, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 1. Pastors who wished to teach consistently the invalidity of the Old Testament law might accordingly stop drawing pay from their congregations. In a related economic matter, James delivered a moral judgment regarding the rich who fraudulently withholded their workers' pay, basing his judgment on the Old Testament law, requiring prompt pay for workers. James chapter 5 verse 4, from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 13, and Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 14 and 15. In financial matters, no less than in sexual matters, the New Testament practice was to utilize the Old Testament moral standards of God's law. Interpersonal Relationships The same is true for interpersonal matters. Few Christians will dispute the New Testament standard that we ought not to avenge ourselves, but rather go to the one who wrongs us and show him his fault. Romans chapter 12 verse 19 and Matthew chapter 18 verse 15. And yet this standard is taken over directly from the Old Testament law at Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. Another commonly endorsed New Testament ethical judgment, which is in fact based on the Old Testament law, is the injunction to care for one's enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Romans chapter 12, verse 20, rooted in the illustration of Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. As often as Christians condemned private vengeance and hatred of one's enemies, they reaffirm the continuing authority of God's law, even if unwittingly. Conclusion One cannot escape the authoritative use of the Old Testament law in New Testament moral judgments. Upon reflection, one should recognize that such use teaches the full validity of God's law today. Invalid rules might be used in fallacious moral judgments, but not in inspired ones. Chapter 14 The Categories of God's Law Quote, By recognizing the various categories of God's Old Testament law, we can readily understand the continuing validity of every stroke of God's commandments for today. End quote. The law of the Lord is fully and forever valid. As such, it holds moral authority over all men today, just as it did previously during the Old Testament era. This biblical truth has been substantiated in numerous ways in past studies from cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, direct assertions of God's word, and all three of the major perspectives on ethics, normative, motivational, and consequential, standard, motive, and goal. Christ spoke clearly and forcefully on the subject when he said, quote, Do not think I have come to abrogate the law or the prophets. I have come not to abrogate, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, until all things have come about, not one letter or stroke shall by any means pass away from the law. Therefore, whoever breaks the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. End quote. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Those who oppose keeping the law or paying attention to its details today have a great deal to explain and defend in light of the teaching of God's word. For instance, the strong affirmation of the Lord quoted above. If the validity of the law, or a portion thereof, has expired in the New Testament, as some claim, 
then what are we to make of scriptural assertions that God does not alter his covenant word, does not allow subtraction from his commandments, is unchanging in his moral character, which the law reflects, and does not have a double standard of right and wrong? Why, then, is the writing of the Old Testament law on our hearts central to the new covenant? Why does the Bible say his commandments are everlasting? Why do New Testament writers say that the entire Old Testament is our instruction in righteousness and to be obeyed? Why do they cite its stipulations with authority and use them to bolster their own teaching? Why are we expected to model our behavior on Christ while we are told that he obeyed the law meticulously and perfectly? Why does the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit entail the observance of God's law? Why does love summarize the law in particular? Why does faith establish the law for us to keep, and why does God's grace teach us to walk in law's path of righteousness? Why are we told in numerous ways that the law brings blessings to those who heed it? Why are the law's requirements never criticized or explicitly repudiated in the New Testament? Why are those who do not keep the law but claim to know the Savior called liars? God's inspired word says all of these things and more. What reply can the detractors from God's law today make in the face of such insurmountable evidence of the law's full validity? The reply that is commonly, albeit fallaciously, made is that we find details in the Old Testament law which are somehow too strange or harsh to obey today, or we find particular requirements in the law which we in fact do not and should not observe in our day. Of course, such replies as these do not face the issues raised above. Surely God was completely aware of the law's details when he revealed those truths in his word which, as observed above, contradict the relaxing, ignoring, or disobeying of his law. If scripture does not make an exception for us, we do not have the moral prerogative to make exceptions for ourselves when it comes to the law's authority over us. No extra-biblical standard, reason, or feeling can be legitimately used to depart from the law of God, for God's word has supreme and unchallengeable authority. If the Lord says that his commandments are to be kept, no creature may draw his word into question. So then, the attempt to belittle obedience to God's law today by pointing to allegedly odd or harsh requirements in that law is doomed to theological failure. It also borders on disrespect for the lawgiver whose holiness is transcribed for the creature in God's law. Quote, O man, who are you who replies against God? End quote. Romans chapter 9 verse 20. It is never our place to become judges of the law, for our calling is to be doers of the law. James chapter 4 verse 11. Nevertheless, there do seem to be Old Testament requirements which are not kept by New Testament Christians, and there are some legal provisions which seem culturally outdated or at least inapplicable to our modern world. How are we to accommodate that fact without becoming judges of the law and without disregarding Christ's declaration that every minor detail of the law has enduring validity? The answer lies in recognizing the nature of the various Old Testament laws, seeing the kind of categories into which they fall. That is, it is necessary to understand the laws of God according to their own character, purpose, and function. Only in that way will the law be, quote, lawfully used, end quote. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Moral and Ceremonial Laws The most fundamental distinction to be drawn between Old Testament laws is between moral laws and ceremonial laws. Two subdivisions within each category will be mentioned subsequently. 
This is not an arbitrary or ad hoc division, for it manifests an underlying rationale or principle. Moral laws reflect the absolute righteousness and judgment of God, guiding man's life into the paths of righteousness. Such laws define holiness and sin, restrain evil through punishment of infractions, and drive the sinner to Christ for salvation. On the other hand, ceremonial laws, or redemptive provisions, reflect the mercy of God in saving those who have violated his moral standards. Such laws define the way of redemption, typify Christ's saving economy, and maintain the holiness or separation of the redeemed community. To illustrate the difference between these two kinds of law, the Old Testament prohibited stealing as a moral precept, but it also made the provision of the sacrificial system so that thieves could have their sins forgiven. When Christ came, he obeyed perfectly every moral precept of God's law, thereby qualifying as our sinless Savior, in order to save us. He laid down his life as a sacrificial lamb in atonement for our transgressions, and thereby giving substance to the Old Testament foreshadows of redemption. While the moral law sets forth the perpetual obligation of all men if they are to be perfect as their Father in heaven is perfect, the ceremonial law is the gospel in figures, proclaiming God's way of redemption for imperfect sinners. The ceremonial law can be seen to have subdivisions. 1. Laws directing the redemptive process and therefore typifying Christ, for instance regulations for sacrifice, the temple, the priesthood, etc. And 2. Laws which taught the redemptive community its separation from the unbelieving nations, for instance prohibition on unclean meats, Leviticus chapter 20 verses 22 through 26, on unequal yoking of animals, Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 10, and on certain kinds of mixing of seed or cloth, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 9 and 11. None of these laws is observed today in the manner of the Old Testament shadows, and yet they are confirmed for us. The principle they taught is still valid. For instance, the ceremonial law prescribed the necessity of shed blood for atonement, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, and accordingly when Christ made atonement for our sins once and for all. It was therefore necessary that he shed his blood for us. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 22 through 24. The Old Testament redemptive system called for a Passover lamb to be sacrificed, and Christ is that lamb for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. The ceremonial law separated Israel from the nations by requiring a separation to be drawn between clean and unclean meats and by prohibiting the unequal yoking of animals. In the New Testament, the outward form of such laws has been surpassed. The spreading of the redeemed community to the Gentiles renders all meats clean, Acts 10. And the sacrifice of Christ has put the system of ordinances which separated the Jews and Gentiles out of gear, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11-20. through 20. But their basic requirement of holy separation from the unclean world of unbelief is still confirmed and in force, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. The ceremonial law is therefore confirmed forever by Christ, even though not kept in its shadow form by New Testament believers. The moral law of God can likewise be seen in two subdivisions, the divisions having simply a literary difference. One, general or summary precepts of morality, for instance, the unspecified requirements of sexual purity and honesty, quote, thou shall not commit adultery, and, quote, thou shall not steal, end quote. And two, commands that specify the general precepts by way of illustrative application. For instance, prohibiting incest, homosexuality, defrauding one's workers, or muzzling the ox as he treads. 
The Puritans termed these case law applications of the Decalogue, quote, judicial laws, end quote. And they correctly held that we are not bound today to keep these judicial laws as they are worded, being couched in the language of an ancient culture that has passed away, but only required to heed their underlying principles, or general equity, as they called it. The Old Testament required that a railing be placed around one's roof as a safety precaution, since guests were entertained on the flat roofs of houses in that ancient society. With our sloped roofs today, we do not need to have the same literal railing, but the general underlying principle might very well require us to have the fence around our backyard swimming pool, again to protect human life. There is abundant evidence that the New Testament authoritatively cited and applied these case law illustrations to current situations. To use examples mentioned above, the New Testament echoes the Old Testament law in prohibiting incest, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, homosexuality, Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and verse 32, defrauding employees, Mark chapter 10, verse 19, and muzzling the ox as he treads, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. Many more examples of ethical injunctions outside of the Decalogue being enforced in the New Testament are available. Therefore, we conclude that Jesus has forever confirmed the moral laws of God, their summary expressions as well as their case law applications. By recognizing the various categories of God's Old Testament law, we can readily understand the continuing validity of every stroke of God's commandments for today. It is simply a matter of properly reading the law itself. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts, where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.